Yeah, it's a huge concern because we still don't know how to preserve digital anything long term. And we don't, we just don't. And we're getting better and we're figuring it out. But they do talk, historians are concerned about what they call a digital, the digital dark ages. everyone the jcv art studio season four my name is joanna and i'm the author of uh, the unraveling and dealer's child and uh just to give you a little update on the ozzy and pepper chronicles pepper's voice is changing he barked yesterday and it was wasn't the squeaky high-pitched bark it was like this deep big dog bark and it was like all right. <laughs> it's good. He he has this squeak to him and this cry that just pierces one side of your head and comes out the other. He hasn't shattered glass yet, so we're looking forward to when the adult dog bark <laughs> kicks in. So anyways, he's a lot of fun. But today I have let's get let's get onto it here. I have author Amy Tector joining me. Um, I am a big fan of Amy's writing, her books, her characters. Um, Louise Penny reviewed her latest novel, which we're going to talk about. And it's Louise Penny said, it is a literary joyride. And it is. Amy, um, just a little bit about her. She loved reading and writing since a child. She grew up in Quebec's eastern townships. Uh, when her husband was um, being offered a job in, as a NATO archivist, they lived the expat life for almost three years. Uh, and in Belgium, Amy returned to her PhD and she wrote a 460 page paper about the representation of disability in Canadian novels of the First World War. And I'm very interested in that, but it was also on Amy's website. And we only have maybe just a little bit over an hour. I think that is a whole separate podcast on its own. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just shaking her head. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you may remember Amy from when we talked about her novel, The Honeybee Emeralds, which is, ah, like I say, you take me down this path 
and I, I'm trying to figure out what it is that is this path she takes the reader down. Okay. A bit about The Foulest Things. It was her debut novel. It was the 2008 finalist in the Crime Writers of Canada Unhanged Author Award. It grew, it morphed, and it is the book that's being released October 25th, which we're going to talk about today, which is The Foulest Things, book one in her Dominion Archives mystery. Amy, I've been looking forward to this. Welcome. Thank you so much, Joanna. And thank you for all those kind words and for reminding me of that PhD, which was a beast. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of research there. Just one little correction. The book is actually being, The Foulest Things is released on September 27th. The oh. Amazon, for some reason, lists it in October. And I've asked my publisher a number of times to yeah. change it so they are supposed to change it but it is a little confusing but it is it will be available as of September 27th but people can buy it in October as well <laughs> I won't mind well that's good good thank you I'm good I'm glad you did correct good so people you can get it like in three weeks two weeks <laughs> right yes yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay now the foulest things this novel takes place in 2010 before we get into it you originally wrote the novel in 2006, and it's really cool that we get to read about it now. So how has it changed from 2006? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it was, you know, it was my the first book I, I wrote. So like in a sense, it was my debut novel. But now that I've now that Honeybee was actually published first, Honeybee is sort of my my debut and this is now the second book which is kind of funny because chronologically it's not how it worked but uh yeah when I wrote it in 2006 I was actually I was living in Belgium then I was doing that PhD I was immersed in uh <laughs> Canadian <laughs> Canadian novels of the first world war and their representation of disability so I was doing a lot of thinking about that and this was my sort of fun release side project that I was working on um and and you can see it in the book because there are these letters um that are from the past that are that is somebody writing from Paris uh in the first world war and they're writing to somebody in Canada and um and those letters uh the archivist the protagonist discovers those letters during her job and that leads her to then make other discoveries and lead her into this murder mystery essentially um but those letters are all really based in that doctoral research I was doing because I was reading so many novels from the time period. My PhD was actually focused on books written from 1914 to 19, I think, 29. Um, and so it's so I was reading all the writing of, that people were doing at that time. So that language and the way that the, the turns of phrase, I really took heavily from that doctoral research and informed how the cadence and the expressions in those letters. So that was kind of a fun creative outlet for this <laughs> slog of a PhD. So that was that was great. But um so how it's changed then from when I wrote it then to now is I think I've become a better writer because after I wrote that one, you know, I, I kept going and writing other novels and and taking workshops and learning more about the craft. So I think 
the 2006 book I was really proud of, but, you know, I've gone back over the years and revised and revised and upped the tension a lot. I think I didn't quite understand then as a first book, how important it was to grab the reader and keep them, take them with you and keep things happening and keep it pacey and keep it moving. So it's a lot more, I think, um, pacey. The characterization, I hope, is a little more complex and sophisticated than when I first, the first sort of drafts of it in 2006. Um, and then over the years, who I wrote it, um, I was a young archivist in her 20s when I wrote that novel. And now I'm a an older archivist <laughs> in her 40s. And so I think I think there's I think it's less uh, it's less autobiographical now because I've aged, but I can see that sort of young person and their concerns. I hope I've maintained those. So, yeah, those are some of the changes. Yeah. It's interesting because one of my questions, which I didn't put here, is there are letters in this book and it is a it's that explains it because it is a totally different voice. Those letters, which is, which shows your talent. Right. Because, uh, yeah. Okay, so that explains a lot. Okay, so then I'm wondering, before again, before we get into the foulest things, when is book two? I was wondering when is book two going to take place. Um, like, are you bringing the present closer to 2022, or is it going to take place in 2015? Because yeah. um, you could have fun with this timeline. Yeah. Um, I, I could, I'm not going to. <laughs> so the next book, which, which actually will be out in spring of 2023. So you won't have to wait very long for the next one. Um, takes place in present day. Okay. Um, so that's a, that's a 10, a 10 year jump because this one takes place in 2010, even though I wrote it in 2016, my first draft was 2006. Um, so yeah, so it takes place in 2010. So it's an, it's a, it'll be a 12, 13 year jump, I guess, in time. And it'll be quite a different book. So I'm, um, the publisher is trying to position The Foulest Things as a prequel in a way, because it'll be a whole new set of characters even, but still um, in the Dominion Archives world, the setting that I've created in the first book. So it's the setting rather than the characters that are gonna come in this in the second book. And I don't know, how readers are going to react to that if they if I've had some trade reviews where they've said we love just just Kendall who's the or just yeah, just Novak who's the who's the protagonist we can't wait to follow her adventures and I think oh no <laughs> it's a new person coming in uh, but maybe if I keep writing these books I can bring Jess back in again for 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 future books but there's a, so it's a setting is the same not the not the character not the protagonist. Well, you could always, well, you've, you've written it now, but let's like Jess moves on to a different job, right? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, the new person could always, can always say, you know, she's looking at notes or files where she sees Jess's handwriting and, and notes about, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's right? lots of places for connection. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So... Let's hear a brief summary. Let's hear a brief summary of what The Foulest Things is about and where it takes place. And I'm just going to mute myself a little bit because Ozzy is totally ticked off that he can't be in the studio <laughs> with me. 
Um, yeah, so The Foulest Things is a, a murder mystery. It's set in this fictional Dominion archives, um, and uh, which is the National Archives of Canada. And um, it's so it's in Ottawa in the sort of bitterest, bitter cold of an Ottawa winter, who, which if anyone has experienced that, you do know that your eyelashes freeze together as you as you walk around outside on their really cold days, and then you have to pry them apart. <laughs> it can be oh. cold. So the weather plays a bit of a role. Well, sir, it plays a role in the story for sure. And um, the story follows Jess, um, Jess Novak, a young uh, archivist who is um, who's very new on the job, very insecure in her position. And in fact, she's sort of on a, um, like, a, a, she's on a, a um, trial she's been hired as a on a trial period so the insecurity of her career is a is 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 important is a worry for her uh, as the novel opens that's what she's most concerned about but she very quickly discovers these letters um that she's she wasn't expecting to find that have been hidden for a century and they're letters from a young artist who has moved to Paris and is writing back to his lover in Canada telling her about these experiences he's having in just as the war is starting in he's in Paris in 1914 in August September just as the war is getting uh, the first world war is kind of getting underway and so he's writing about his experiences and thoughts there so she discovers these letters that discovery sends her into the art vaults uh, where she's not really supposed to go and in the art vaults uh, when she's going to do a little bit of investigation about who this person was who's written the letters, she discovers a dead body. And from there, she's embroiled in a in a sort of classic, I think, uh, murder mystery where she's trying, she's an amateur sleuth trying to trying to figure out, you know, what this murder is, how it connects to the letters, because there is a connection, or if it connects, and then how it connects to the letters. And, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, um, you know, unrequired, there's, uh, you know, uh, tragic love stories and, and uh, stolen art and all sorts of, uh, you know, biker gangs all kind of mixed in there too, uh, into the mix. Well, God, when she discovers the body, I mean, I didn't expect it. It was, I, you know, like I just, I was reading along and then that scene happens and I'm like, <gasps> right. <laughs> and, you know, just thinking back, oh God, we had what was called a dead file room, okay? And there there are there were we'd call it the dungeon. And I remember <laughs> a coworker would say to me, Joanna, are you doing something important? Do you want to come down to the, the dungeon with me? Just because she did because that's where all the old dead files were. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and you just yeah sure I'll I'll go and it and it was cold and <laughs> because it was usually in the basement and you just did not want to be down there by yourself in case you did find a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Now Jess, she is an interesting protagonist. Can you? Tell us a bit about her occupation as an archivist, because I found it really fascinating. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I am an archivist, and I, uh, I've been an archivist and a manager at Library and Archives Canada, which is the National Archives and the National Library squashed together, which is Canada's national institution, uh, for more than 20 years. And so... Uh, 
and I love it. And I love the profession and I love kind of the work that gets done. And I love that sense of you never know what's going to be in a box. And so that's what I was trying to convey. But <laughs> my sister read an early draft of the book and was like, you make, she's like, yeah, there's a lot about archives, but you make it interesting. So I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> backhanded compliment. But <laughs> so that's really what I was trying to do. Because of course, if somebody even knows what an archivist is, they sort of associate it with kind of somebody dusty and boring and kind of library adjacent. And there's probably a bit of that. But um, yeah, so her, her her job, there's all sorts of different jobs you can have in an archives, but Jess works in the, in the private manuscript um, area. And so her job is to uh, acquire and organize and then make known the records belonging to prominent um, and important people related to the archives mandate and because it's a national archives then it's people of national significance is, is is her focus and so there's lots of stuff you you know you have to meet with donors and charm them or you have to go to auctions and purchase stuff from the estates of people who have passed away you know you have to um uh, you, and then you have to get all this material and you have to go through it and try to place some order over someone's life because an archives is sort of a, a private archives is the stuff that is created while someone is living their life. It's not, it's not sort of organizational records. It's, it's the sort of, it's the, it's the leftovers from somebody living their life. So you have an archives. I have an archives. It would be filled with our emails and our texts and our, oh, wow. you know, our Instagram yeah. accounts and our TikToks. It would be the yeah. paper letters that we send. It would be the photographs that we've, that we've snapped on vacation. All of that is our own person. It would be our business records. It would be our, the bills that we pay. All of that is oh, part wow. of our own personal archives. Most of the time, those aren't interesting to an institution but if someone has played uh, an important role in history or politics or society then an archives becomes more interested in that and the archivist's job is to figure out where they can where they can acquire those records where they can find them and then to negotiate with the person about what they want because you don't want the phone bills and you don't want the you might not want the Instagram account, but if the person is famous, if it was Kim Kardashian's archives that you were acquiring, you would want to get all the content that feeds her Instagram. So depend, whereas if it was a, I don't know, a world famous scientist, you might not want their personal Instagram account. So you sort of have to tailor what you're acquiring to each person who you're acquiring from. And then you have to, once you get it all, you have to put some kind of order on it. Um, but you don't want to put too much order because you don't want to influence future researchers. You don't want to you want to be as unsubjective as possible about how you organize the records so that anybody can come with any angle. Like if you um, if you were very interested in fashion and you had Kim Kardashian's archives, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but, you know, and somebody had made a fashion, um, uh, you know, folder or file or place where all her fashion stuff would be that would be really interesting that would be important for the researcher on fashion but if you if you were a researcher who wanted to know about how the you know 21st century approached I don't know <laughs> law law studies because she's studying to be a lawyer then it would be very frustrating that there was all this fashion stuff in the law in the law folder so what archivists try to do is impose some sort of order so people can find things without putting too much uh, subjectivity on how they organize. So it's quite a fine balance. Uh, and then once that's all kind of organized and ordered, it can be then made available to researchers who can then, you know, do do with it what they want. Wow. 
Okay. And your character talks about that, about having to remain impartial, you know, Mm -hmm. which I never thought of. I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. okay. Now it's trying to remain impartial because I think archives have now realized they never do. There's always, there's always agendas that get put into how records are collected and organized, but they they try to. (laughs) Well, I could see how she could get swept up with the letters. I Mm -hmm. really could just, it's almost like you're getting uh, a little, I don't know if the word is kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope. Or is it, yeah, Periscope is, is in the water, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like a mix-up, yeah. Uh, just a, a, a view of another person's life. Okay, yeah. okay. So did you find that when you're writing about Jess, that there were times her occupation restricted the storyline? And what I mean is, okay, let's say Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible. Let's say he slinkies his way into the art vault. (laughs) He finds the clue. He shoots the bad guy. He slinkies his way out. There's no consequences. Okay. Like, cause he's, he's, he's Tom Cruise and this is what he does. Okay. But with Jess, she goes into that art vault and she gets reprimanded after mm-hmm. which oh, oh it it was a good scene because you just kind of feel your stomach drop as she's getting in trouble because she wasn't supposed to be there which is great for conflict so did you did you find you were like coping with that like were there any restrictions in terms of what Jess could do because of her occupation yeah, there were. And I actually, and I liked that because then she had to navigate her way through them. So it, exa- it did exactly what you wanted. There was conflict. So if Jess very confidently could just feel like she could just take original ar- archival documents home with her, um, that would have made it, uh, she felt that she couldn't. She, In fact, she, she couldn't. That's yeah. really against the rules. And so part of the sort of tension of the story is she has to leave these papers, these letters that she's discovered that she realizes increasingly have a lot of significance. She had to leave them uh, not in her keeping. She couldn't keep the originals. And so that becomes a source of of tension and conflict. Similarly, uh, she's so vulnerable and she could sort of be so easily fired and she feels so sort of um, at a disadvantage in her work that she has to maintain good relationship with her boss, which she finds challenging. And she has to maintain good relationships with her colleagues. She feels like they're kind of keeping an eye on her because she's the new person. And if she's not a good fit, she's not going to be hired on permanently, which is a great dream. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the constraints of her position increase the tension in the story. Yeah. So that, so that there's kind of extra layers of, of stakes for her. Well, it sure, it sure works. I mean, and then there's Oliver, right. Who right now I'm not finished like I think I said before I'm not finished the book yet and he's not a very nice boss <laughs> oh. he's not a very nice boss oh god I think we've all worked for an Oliver at some point in our lives <laughs> okay so now your characters your characters but it's good it works like you need the Oliver in the story right because that definitely adds tension for poor Jess mm-hmm. and another okay I'm kind of going off off on a tangent here but the other thing I liked when I was reading it so she gets 
there's, oh, I can't remember, is it like eight or nine boxes of letters they get from the auction? Mm-hmm. And, and she sends the form because she needs, she wants, this is going to be her project. And she needs all the boxes. She's going to go through them. And then she gets the message back that since you're a probationary employee, you're only allowed three boxes at a time. And I thought, oh, my God, that's government. (laughs) (laughs) That's government, you know, because you're just trying to do your job. And you get get these little mini roadblocks happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I did want to capture that a little too, like the, those frustrations. That's another kind of element of conflict that she has. She has to navigate this big system that she's part of that is a little bit inhuman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because then she's got to send probably like a, a requisition after she's done the third box. Okay, I need the next three. <laughs> it's just, yeah, okay. I got it. I so got it. And yeah, okay. Now, okay, back to back to the program, Joe. Now, your characters... There's Louise, who's holding on to this enormous electric typewriter. And you write, she couldn't work a computer to save her life. Um, When we first got computers in the Crown Council office, I held on. I said, I remember saying (laughs) once, do not get rid of this electric typewriter. Um, Because if... (laughs) If something should happen to the computers, at least can we type an envelope? <laughs> that was my just so we can get something out. But anyway, anyways, at the time that made it made sense to me. But anyways, okay. So then we have Detective Lemieux. We have Jess's mother, Casey Novak, and she's an investigative journalist. And oh my God, she's a character now. I'm noticing with my books, I have mothers appearing. And whether it's as a ghost or even as another character's mother, mm. there's a mother. And these women are strong in their own individual way. You have Casey, okay, Casey Novak. And then you also dedicate this book to your mom. And I wanted to know. What do you think it is about mothers that is so fun to write about? Yeah, and I mean, such a good question. They're so central, right? And I mean, I I am cognizant that not everyone has a great relationship with their mother or has had a mother, but but that, that in society, that role of mother is so central to who we are, even the absence of one or even a bad one, it shapes it, it 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 is it is primal in a way and i mean i'm not to discount the importance of, of the fathers as yeah. well but there's there can be something i think especially with women yeah. in that in that relationship with their mother and there's so much often there's so much you know love and there's so much goodwill but there's also so much conflict because it's it's you know two people who were literally one (laughs) for nine months and I think mothers spend you know their whole lives mourning that loss in some way or or coming to terms with it and and acknowledging that this person who was part of you is their own person and and makes their own decisions and and 
you know, and makes their own mistakes, which can often be the hardest thing. And I think really in your 20s, um, that's the time when you really, you pull away, or at least for me, you pull away from that parent um, and you start to realize you you come back to that relationship as an adult and you make you you form it in a new way right so you yeah. so there's that sort of classic you leave home and you um and you um you're you're separated and maybe yeah. it's maybe there's a lot of conflict there and and then gradually you start to realize oh hey she, she did know what she was talking about she, the, she was right about that like that was my experience and you know by by my mid-20s I had a lot more appreciation for my mother and her wisdom and her ideas and, and what she'd been through in her own life and yeah. um so so that's kind of what I was capturing or trying to capture well it's it's neat and it's neat that you know <laughs> Casey just doesn't understand why Jess likes playing with papers <laughs> like it's just yeah. <laughs> oh, and she's trying to get her a job <laughs> yeah and there's ego, right? And and like we all have it. I have a daughter, and and like I, there's a little bit of who my daughter is is who I am, and so which isn't right, which isn't the right yeah. approach. But you you bring your own ego to to your children, and you impose that on them, and that's certainly what Casey's doing. Like that, you know, she wants a mini me in some respects. Yeah. And yeah. and and Jess has to kind of differentiate and push away and and claim her own space. And I was a little nervous dedicating this particular book to my mother because it does have, like you said, a kind of fraught mother-daughter relationship, which isn't the case yeah, <laughs> me yeah. and my mother, but yeah. <laughs> that's kind of just how it worked out. And only afterwards, I was like, oh, wait a second, but <laughs> no, <laughs> don't want to de- delve too deeply into it. It's fine. No, no, I didn't. I didn't take it as that. I, I see because I could see Casey as a strong woman in her own um, not in her own right, but like in her own approach to life. Like she's, she's, she's very, I saw Casey as someone who is strong in her convictions, you know? So I thought of it as you dedicate it to your mom, but I thought you dedicated it as an acknowledgement of the strength of what it is like to be a mom. Right. Mm, So that's how, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, the setting, like I said, I'm 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 identifying <laughs> with the setting. Um, Crown Council, early '90s, and I remember I had a wooden desk that was broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you, you something with the drawer. Okay, uh, there there. You mentioned budget restrictions. Budget restrictions. That's why I had a broken desk. Um, there was no such thing as OHS, Occupational Health and Safety Committee. Mm. Um, and I remember if you got wind that someone was leaving, it's like the rest of the staff was poaching <laughs> that individual's <laughs> furniture. Right? You know? So, and then what got me is you write how Jess in her office, in her space, you know, there's a poster from her predecessor which I thought was perfect. And it's it's a poster of a kitten tangled in a ball of yarn with the slogan, you can do it, <laughs> right? Which was, I thought, yeah, that I remember those, <laughs> you know, right? How did it feel doing rewrites and looking, like literally we were looking back on yeah. that time. Yeah, it, it 
it made me feel like tender towards Jess and towards the Amy who, (laughs) you know, had all those insecurities. Um, And in a way that I wouldn't have, I couldn't have felt when I was in it because I thought I was, you know, taking care of business and on top of the game and was doing everything exactly right. And now in retrospect, I just look back on myself or, you know, not that Jess is a one-to-one to me by any means, but, you know, and I just think, oh, like you're, you, you know, so little and yet you think you know so much and you're so vulnerable and you're so unsure and, and yet you have so much power. That's what I, when I see these, I teach archives at, uh, at, at Carleton University every now and then. And I see these young people in front of me and I think you've got so much in you yeah. and yet you don't know it yet. And then by the time you figure it out, you're kind of older and (laughs) crabbier and less enthusiastic, but you know, so it's, it's it's, uh, those old cliches about youth being wasted on the young and that kind of thing. Cause, cause you can see it as an older person, you know, what's ahead and, and, and the worries that young people have, maybe they're not actually as, you know, it's going to work out in the wash, but you you have to live it in order to understand that. So it's, it is life, you know, but yeah, I definitely doing the rewrites had these moments of, kind of like tenderness towards yeah. that character and then occasionally I was like is this too much but I kind of I wanted to trust myself from then too when I was doing that writing so I I often would leave things um and I think you know they didn't get flagged in the editorial process so I guess they were okay yeah because it maybe it was yeah it, it was a it was a different time definitely a different time yeah Okay, so one more thing. One more thing about the setting, um, and because you mentioned this in the in the beginning, because uh, like I said, it takes place. In, it takes place in 2010, and you bring up the Olympics, and man, like I remember it. Yeah, Vancouver was bidding to get the Winter Olympics in 2010, and I remember standing in the Starbucks. Port Street Starbucks before work and Victoria and Premier Gordon Campbell was in that lineup. And I remember he came up, he got his coffee and I, I was waiting for mine. And I just, I said to him, I go, I hope we get the Olympics. And we did. And uh, yeah, it, like I say, it was a very, it, this book, it's, it's quite a trip down memory road and, and what it, what I'm yeah, remembering. Yeah, yeah. So be for you any special memories from 2010 well you know in a like as I said I wrote this sort of 2006 2007 yeah. but it's set in 2010 and it was partly because of the Olympics because I thought when I went to do my rewrites yeah in sort of last year I was like well I it's weird to just have it sort of amorphously 2000 like why it's because yeah. it was written then and you know, the world has moved on so much. It was of that time. So it is yeah. sort of like very small historical novel. Um, and so I wasn't going to bring it up to the present. I wanted to leave it where it was because I liked all those details. Yeah. But I thought I need I need an anchor in time that will be strong for people to have that resonance. And so the 2010 Vancouver Olympics was like, an, it was worked really well as a thing that people would care about. And, you know, it would just sort of, pop up every now and then in conversation or you'd see the flag or some, you know, the hockey team or what have you that could, that could be in there reminding people that this is set in a particular time. So I, I bumped the book up 
in fact, like it maybe is actually set in 2006, 2007, but I bumped it up to 2010 yeah. from the place of 2021 in yeah. order to, in order to give it a really good historical anchor. But yeah, like 2010, I, uh, I also, because it's the Olympics, I can remember I, I had actually a brand new baby at that point. Uh, yeah. So that was my, um, I was, I was on my maternity leave and was, uh, yeah. A, a, very, a very new mother in right around those Olympics. So that was my, my big memory is. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome. That is awesome. Okay. Now the research, let's talk about Canadian who's who. I never knew this existed. I never knew this book existed and I found it on the internet. There's a Canadian who's who. .ca. And I'm just thinking this could be a great research tool for an author. Um, and I just didn't know about it. So your thoughts about it? What, how, how have you found it? What, yeah, what, what, it is a great research tool. Um, and I actually didn't know that it was online because when I have used it in the past, again, when I was a reference archivist, that was back 2001, 2002, 2003, we actually would go and pull off those big red books that I describe in the book and flip through them. So it is great if they've put the whole thing online and it's not behind a paywall. I didn't even, I didn't actually even realize that was available, but yeah, it's a, it's similar to the British who's who, if you've ever read, you know, Jane, you, you know, it's a sort of a descendant of, of the, the, like this tradition of wealthy, prominent, important people, however you define that. And, you know, for the longest time that was, you were white and male and probably yeah. Protestant in Canada, yeah. um, submit their own essentially descriptions of themselves and get included in this uh, annual compendium of who's who in Canada. And I'm I'm assuming there's certainly a who's who in the United Kingdom. I'm assuming that most countries would have this kind of um, uh, publication. Yeah. So depending on where you're researching and who you're researching in, you, you could go and dig them up. And usually it's just a it's it is what I describe in the book generally, unless someone's led, you know, this extraordinary life and done all kinds of things. But it's usually sort of a paragraph who they were married to, who their parents were. Um, what their what their religion is, what their political affiliation is, um, how many children they have, and then where they live, and it would have addresses, yeah. um, which can be really useful again if you're doing research. Um, and then you know a line or two about why they deserve to be in the who's who, oh. and then that would every year that would get reissued with any updates, another baby being born, another a new job or position being taken by this person. Um, so they are a really great resource. Wow. Okay. Okay. So Amy, you write, and this is in our heroine's point of view, my academic distance from the story was rapidly disappearing. I found myself wanting Gems Rembrandt to be real. Now we touched upon this a bit, and you were saying how an archivist you need to remain impartial, like record the facts, right? But you're saying you that's very hard. You an archivist can still flavor the documents that they're uncovering. Oh, absolutely. You have these personal relationships with with what you're uncovering. And I think 
I think in some respects, that's okay up to a point. But if it starts to influence how you're presenting the work to others, then your bias is coming through. And, you know, maybe for something like in this instance with Jess, maybe that's okay. You know, if she writes a overly effusive description about his artwork, maybe that's not the end of the world. Where it gets really troubling and where the archives really works hard at is those biases that we all carry, especially around, um, you know, gender or race or, um, you know, decisions around what we acquire and what's of value. There's a lot of subjectivity in an archivist's work that for a long time wasn't acknowledged because we would say, oh no, we're impartial, but that's nonsense because you can't be impartial because we all carry our own issues with us. And so from a Canadian perspective, certainly around Indigenous issues, especially that has been, um, you know, for the past 10, 15 years, the archival world has been really looking at how they approach and document the indigenous life in Canada, because the archives are the building block to history. That's where historians go. Traditionally, that's how historians wrote history was, was by turning to archives. And if archives haven't acquired or haven't haven't acquired the material, then historians can't study it and write about it and tell us who we are. Or if they've acquired the material but devalued it so much because from their own biases and the time periods they were living in, they didn't they didn't understand how important a specific document or photograph was or you know describe it in an offensive way all of that creates the archives that then the historians use that then they use to create the stories about who we are as a country and you know uh so (laughs) that's where the that's where this um being as as impartial as possible is important but also impossible because you can't be you can't you can't and and yeah so so there's so you know the the whole profession is working hard to address this and we need to definitely have more people from different backgrounds who aren't sort of the traditional archivist profile working in archives and making decisions and and talking about it lots going on well it's neat seeing with Jess you know because Jim is a character from the past and he as she's reading so just the listeners understand um, Jess is reading this character, Jim, his love letter. And he writes in this love letter that he has found a Rembrandt because these love letters are from during the war. It's the First World War, isn't it? Yeah. It's the first yeah. World War. yeah. And you can see where, like, when you wrote that, that sentence, how she's hoping that this Rembrandt he says he has, she's hoping it'll, it's real, you know, like I I don't think she's starting to get pulled into this, this story here. Yeah. Now another beautiful paragraph (laughs) is when Jess and Mike, Mike is actually her coworker go out on their first date. And Mike is talking about a writer. He knew Edward Hover or Hovier, H-A-U-V-E-R. And by the way, with your writing, um, the lines between fiction and nonfiction, I actually Googled Edward <laughs> Hovier and I thought, okay, is this a real person? Is this a real writer? <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> Mike, this line where Mike says to Jess, where do you keep lives once the person has gone, where do you find the shades and nuances of someone's existence? How do you capture and understand anyone after they've left us? 
that just hit me, you know, and um, for me, I was personally, I was honored because I was able to take part. It was during 2020, the Royal BC Museum have started a collection with regards to the pandemic and they wanted entries from individuals you know letters articles are about living through the pandemic because they wanted a record right yeah cool and so then I was able to submit art art images okay um the one being of a nurse so thinking of what Mike says that those beautiful what are they one two three of those beautiful three lines do you have any concerns now, given our electronic internet mm. age, of losing those paper notes, of losing those letters? Yeah, it's a huge concern because yeah. we still don't know how to preserve digital anything yeah. long term. And we don't, we just don't. And we're getting better and we're figuring it out. But yeah. They do talk, historians are concerned about what they call a digital, the digital dark ages, which is definitely from the sort of maybe early 90s when computers were introduced up until maybe, I don't know, maybe for a 20 year period there where where it was people were really scrambling to figure all over the world yeah. um, to figure out how to preserve the digital, like the huge mass of digital that's being produced because we're really good at preserving paper. Yeah. You know, there's, there's uh papyrus from Egyptian times. It's still kicking around. All you have to do is stick that paper in a, you know, a temperature controlled, humidity controlled box. And it doesn't even, sometimes it'll last even without that. And that stuff will be legible for hundreds of years or thousands of years with the naked eye. But with technology, any technology, you need an interpreter. You need something to make those bits and bytes, those um, zeros and ones legible, to understandable to humans. And there's such a, when you think about like WordPerfect, which oh. used to be the used to be the software that everybody used, that's gone. And so if you've got a WordPerfect file, it becomes very difficult now to translate it and read it. And yeah. so archives around the world had to pivot about 20 years ago to figure it suddenly, you know, acquiring expertise in all these different softwares. And that's just one example, but you know, there are hundreds and thousands. Uh, so it, it continues to be uh, uh, the, the biggest challenge for any archives. And um, the answer isn't to print it all. <laughs> yeah. There's so much, there's so much more of it, like the electronic stuff. Um, and so, the, you know, there's lots of different strategies that are in place and, and, we're, you know, the world is getting a handle on it, but it is, it is a real issue for sure that what will be lost with the digital, even again, when we talk about your own personal archives, right? Like, did you transfer, have you been transferring at all your photos from all your different devices every year and moving them along? And is, the, are they well-organized and can you find them and will they continue? And if you, if you were to disappear tomorrow, would somebody else continue to do that work or will when that computer dies where all those photos are will that just be gone you know as opposed to going up to the attic and finding grandma's photo album that you've never seen before will that you know um yeah. so that's just a small example but it's a it is digital preservation is is the big issue and concern and challenge and it's very expensive as well so and it takes a lot of technical expertise which yeah. has had to be developed over the past 20 years so it's a big issue <laughs> well, you know, having just, um, you know, we're in our house now. 
and we're moving boxes that we had in storage into the house. Okay. We were finally kind of settled and um, I found photo albums and literally they stop the year our youngest daughter graduated. Like, and it's sad. It yeah. is sad. Cause she, Oh God, I can't remember when Kara graduated. I remember when she was born, <laughs> but, but yeah. And I, I think the other thing with the technology is um, again, I found when I used to do personal training, the, they're not even called the floppy disks, but like the little CDs that you used yeah, to yeah, store yeah. stuff. Yeah. There's, what? I have no way of accessing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now your local archives should be able to access it. So if there was something important, you know, you could work with them because that is, I mean, at Library and Archives Canada, this has a state-of-the-art preservation center, which is, which I actually describe, I spend a lot of time on that building because I love it um, yeah. in Gatineau. So that building is real. Um, and in that building are uh, eight track players and uh, VCRs and uh, computers that can take a floppy disk and a CD-ROM and the the experts who work there troll the flea markets and buy when they find an old machine if they need it they'll buy it for the parts because that's so that if an archivist acquires you know acquires some. Um, the prime minister's records and it so happens that there's this amazing trove of 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 you know material that's all on floppy disks we'll be able to read that and then and then move it off that that uh, format and onto something that we can then keep migrating keep migrating keep migrating wow wow okay yeah. because okay well, we're going we're going off the script here, but this is <laughs> fascinating okay Forever. so shut me down yeah, no 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 this is fascinating <laughs> The other thing that happened, now I, I'm curious how are the listeners feel about this. Okay, we have, again, going back to crown times, I remember um, there was like a, oh God, what do you call it? A labor dispute going on. We were just about, this is back. We just about went on strike, but we didn't. And so then there was a signing, like a, a bonus we received. And I remember with that bonus, I bought myself a stereo system. Okay. Mm. Like at the time, I mean, you had that big monster speakers, right? (laughs) (laughs) And there was what we'd call the tuner, the record player Mm. and um, the tape cassette. And with the tuner and the main body of it, that's where you could, (laughs) this is going to sound so old, push a button and listen to the radio. Okay. Mm. And Ed found that yesterday and um, he was wanting to hook it up to the uh, Bluetooth speakers. And I said, I don't think so. I don't think the technology is just too yeah. far behind. Right. Yeah. But I wish he could because yeah. literally I'm, I'm at a point where I'm, I just, I don't want any more. Oh, I don't know if you want to call it stuff coming off my phone. You know, I literally want to be able to push a button, turn on the radio, walk out of the room. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so I'm really hoping we can get something hooked up because he was saying, no, Joe, this is like old school wire. I've got to wire this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. speakers, right? So, okay, this has been fascinating. Gosh, okay. (laughs) Okay, so 
Amy, I'm sorry, Amy, back to your book. I've just, you know, I think last time, was it you or was it someone else? I called them the name of the character. Okay. No, you didn't do that to me. <laughs> okay. Back to your book. Favorite question. Now, let's see if, if, let's see, let's see. I'm just thinking if I want to turn this around now. Okay. Let's say it's your first day on the job at Dominion Archives and you bump into Jess. Mm -hmm. And she's no longer the newbie. What would Jess say to you? Well, given the experiences that she has in the book, she might say, watch your back. (laughs) Don't trust anyone. (laughs) If we're talking end of the book, Jess, that might be her uh, her advice. I hope that's not too spoilery. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Okay. And yeah. And um. Yeah, and and you're not being harsh. Um, I have been in an office where that was said to me too. Watch your back. Yeah, <laughs> I've been also in some great offices. Too. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is. I, I am. I do feel nervous about this book because it's it's based on Library and Archives. My work at Library and Archives Canada when it was the National Archives. So it is from twenty years ago now, really. Yeah. But. I, you know, I, I have a caveat in my acknowledgments, thanking my colleagues and saying, this is, they are not like this. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. And they aren't, they yeah. are. Yeah. I have over-exaggerated everything. This yeah. is not that, you know, that's not sort of has poor security and mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. Things. That's not, that's yeah. not the real, that's the Dominion archives, which yeah. is mythical. <laughs> yeah. We're authors. If we don't put tension in words, we're not <laughs> exactly. going to sell a book. <laughs> If I wrote a book about my real job, it would be very dull and no one would want to read it. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, Amy. Yeah. Thank you. And you said spring 2023? Spring 2023 for the next one, which will be called Speak for the Dead and will feature a new uh, protagonist who will be a sarcastic, embittered coroner, actually, who's working in the archives uh, due to a death. Oh, wow. Cool. And I have to say, kudos to your publisher uh, for publishing a book that takes place in 2010. Yeah. I, I don't know how many publishers would have done that. Yeah, yeah. Because right? it's not, it isn't historical, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it is this kind of funny period. Well, I've, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And um, yeah, so thank you very much, Amy. Well, it was a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you as always. Okay, okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye.